Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew. And the word of God says, This is how the birth of Jesus Christ took place. When Mary, his mother, was engaged to Joseph before they were married, she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. Because he didn't want to humiliate her, he decided to call off their engagement quietly. As he was thinking about this, an angel from the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because the child she carries was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now all of this took place so that what the Lord had spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled. Look, a virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did just as an angel from God had commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he didn't have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son. Joseph called him Jesus. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. So here's a picture of me when I was in junior high. Soak that in. Can you believe that your pastor used to be so cool, right? I also share this. If there's any students watching, I've been there. I've been there. I was in the seventh grade when I took the practice SAT for the very first time, the seventh grade. And I remember the teacher uh, who was administering the test telling us in no uncertain terms that we had better start planning for college right then. Because in the ninth grade, two years later, our GPA would start to count. And you know how important it is to get a GPA off to a good start because it's so much harder to get it back when you're a, a sophomore or a junior. And by the time you're a junior, you'd better be applying and, and probably accepted. And, and if you don't get into the right college, you might not be able to pursue the right career. And who knows what could happen then? Seventh grade. The next year in the eighth grade, there was a man who came by our classroom and he was wearing a suit. I remember it was a really nice suit. He made sure to show us that his name was embroidered, stitched into the suit jacket. And he told us about the importance of retirement and planning for our retirement and having an aggressive savings strategy. And I was wondering why my hair was suddenly curly and why my voice was squeaky and why the braces felt so weird inside my mouth. But no, 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 please tell me about this lake house that my wife and I are going to want to retire to and invite the grandkids over to in like a million years, right? Later that same year, the youth pastors from the local churches began to attend lunch in our cafeteria. It was pretty cool for me because my youth pastor, she brought a, a pizza, like real pizza, good pizza, not that weird like rectangle pizza that they only seem to serve in school cafeterias. But the other youth pastors, they came bringing food and also a message that I hadn't heard before. I had been in this nice little uh, church home bubble my whole life. And they said that if me and my friends didn't go to their churches, then we were going to be spending eternity in this lake of fire, enduring pain because God loves us, I think. 
In the 20 years since I left Harwood Junior High, it hasn't gotten a whole lot better, has it? The pressure we place upon young people to make the right choice, choose the right path, aim higher, reach further, achieve all that they can, it's resulted in a generation that is more mentally unwill, unwell, more financially indebted, and more cynical and pessimistic about the future than any generation currently alive. Do you feel the pressure? Do you love someone or know someone who is feeling the kind of pressure that I'm talking about and describing? Even though younger generations may be feeling this kind of pressure in new and pronounced ways, regardless of our age, all of us, the social pressure to do the right thing, be the right kind of person, maintain the right lifestyle and image, that's a pressure that all of us are exposed to on a daily basis. And the pressure itself is nothing new. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's Gospel opens up his version of the Christmas story by offering this window into a pressure that could feel very familiar to a lot of us. Here's the story that's not on the page. A young boy is born into a small village, maybe a few hundred people, where everybody knows everybody. His father is a builder, and a very technically skilled one at that. He can use wood and stone and metals to craft incredible things. He's a true artisan. He's also devoutly religious. His dad, whose name is Jacob, he's devoutly religious as he teaches this young boy to memorize their sacred texts. The boy dreams of growing up to be just like dad, head of a large household, a successful artisan, a righteous, God-fearing man respected by the community. And so he studies. He learns the craft from his father. He memorizes the religious texts. He does everything that he is supposed to do. And then one day, the young boy becomes a young man, and it's time, his parents say, for him to consider settling down with a young woman. And there's this girl in town. And Joseph's dad talks to her dad, and they say that they're allowed to talk. And Glances turn into stares, turn into smiles, turn into hellos, turn into long walks, turn into longer conversations, turn into one short question. Will you marry me? Yes, she says. And for a moment, everything is perfect. A few weeks go by. Plans are made for the big wedding day. Gifts are exchanged with the girl's family. Everything is falling into place for this young man's life to really begin. And then his fiance, and he still can't believe she said yes, his fiance comes to his home with a look on her face that says, We need to talk. She sits him down. She says a lot, but he doesn't hear much except for two words I'm pregnant. Everything in his body goes numb. His mind begins to race. What? How could she be pregnant? I can't be the father. How could she do this to me? Who is the father? I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill her. Everyone is going to know about this. I am going to be ruined. Nobody is going to respect me. This wasn't supposed to happen. And for a moment, everything is falling apart. This is the story of Joseph. 
It's not the story that you'll find written on the page. It's the story that comes right before the Word of God begins. It's the story that everyone listening to Matthew's gospel would have understood in the back of their minds. They know how a story like this goes. Joseph, the man who would go on to raise Christ's child as his own son. Have you ever felt like life was falling apart? Nothing was going the way it was supposed to or the way it was planned. The pressure of perfection turning to dust and you along with it. Do you know what that feels like? But it's what God does next with Joseph's story, the story that Matthew chooses to tell, the way that Joseph responds to his Christmas experience that can offer us a different way of living, freed from the pressure to find this ever-elusive path of perfection. So let's walk and journey through the text this morning and sense what shifts Joseph to a different kind of faith. Matthew opens the story, the narrative of his gospel, this way. This is how the birth of Jesus took place, Matthew says. When Mary, his mother, was engaged to Joseph before they were married, she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. Because he didn't want to humiliate her, he decided to call off their engagement quietly. Two things here. First, Matthew says, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ took place. Now, what you don't know, perhaps, is the way Matthew opens his gospel, verse 1 through verse 17, is this lengthy list of lineage. It's this, it's this uh, so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so, all the way from Abraham down to David down to Jesus. And it's full of sy- symbolism and symmetry. And what, what's important, though, is that if you're listening to this, As a Jewish person, because that's who Matthew's preaching to, he's preaching to a religious insider, someone who thinks they've got their faith figured out. What they're hearing in the back of their heads is this sort of fanfare, this trumpet building up, right? Because it's a royal lineage. And as it gets closer and closer to Jesus, you think, here it comes, here it comes. This is the new David. This is the promise of Abraham. This is the king that we've been waiting for, the story that we've been waiting for. And Matthew says, this is how it took place. And he zooms in the camera, not on the palace, not on the governor's mansion, not even on the mayor's home, but on this tiny, insignificant family, not not even really a family, a, a family that's fighting, doused in scandal probably have no future, the kind of family that people back home whisper about behind their backs, maybe even in front of their faces. This is how the story takes place, Matthew says. One of the big themes in the Gospel of Matthew that he's laying the first thread of here is this. This is not the story you were waiting for. This is not the faith you were waiting for. This is not the religion you were waiting for. This is not the promise of God that maybe you thought you were waiting for. This is something different, something messier, something better. But then there's this other, the second verse. It says, Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. He was a righteous man. That word righteous, we saw it a couple of weeks ago in the story of Zechariah. It said Zechariah was righteous. The word there is dikaios. And dikaios in Greek is, is not righteous like he was a good guy. It's righteous like he followed the law, like devoutly followed the letter of the law. Zechariah was one of the priests. Makes a lot of sense for him. Joseph is just 
kind of a, he's, a, he's an artisan's son, but he is still this righteous man uh, following the letter of the law. And then it says, in a touch of irony, he's so righteous, he's, he's so a follower of the law that he decides to bend the law. Wait a second. It's not what we expected. Why would Joseph do this? It's as though Matthew is trying to say something to us as well about what it means to be righteous. This is a thread that will run through the gospel of Matthew as well. Just like this is not the story you were waiting for, Matthew's now saying righteousness is maybe not what you first believed. The spirit of the law outweighs the letter of the law. Because by the letter of the law, Joseph could have when it was originally written, the law said that he could have had Mary publicly executed by stoning. By the time Joseph was alive, that law had been revised to say, well, she doesn't have to die, but her shame should be made public, and she should never be allowed to marry, and she should be an outcast and impoverished for the rest of her life. And Joseph says, I'm not going to do that, even though that's what the law says he should do. Matthew is trying to wake us up to a different kind of faith, a different kind of religion. It's not the one that we were waiting for. It's one where the spirit of the law outweighs the letter. So then we keep reading in this story. It says this, as he was thinking about this, talk about an understatement of the century. As he was thinking about all this, an angel from the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, put a pin in that, we'll come back. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because the child she carries was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And now all of this took place so that, the Lord, so that what the Lord had spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled. Look, a virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. As I place myself in Joseph's story, as I try to understand what it would have been like to be him, I wonder, what, what is it beyond this fever dream of a heavenly visitor? What is it that within Joseph that shifts so that he can not only bend the law, but intentionally break it, at least in the eyes of his community? Not only is he not going to send Mary away quietly, he's going to take her as his wife and raise the child as his own, scandal upon scandal. Joseph is proving to be a different kind of righteous. What is it that shifts within him that allows him to act in this way? I was at a rehearsal dinner for a wedding years ago. It was for a young couple. And the father of the groom stood up at one point to offer the speech. And I've heard good speeches. I've heard boring speeches. This was the first time I'd heard a speech that actually offended me. He was talking about his son. And the father said, you know, son, your mother and I are so proud of you. We're so proud of the man that you are becoming. You have made so many good choices in your life. When, when you applied to this school, we were so proud of you. And, and when you pursued that degree, we were so proud of you. What a great choice. And then when you went and got your master's, we were so proud of the choice that you made. And tonight, tomorrow, you're going to marry her, and she is just another great choice in your life, and we are so proud of you. And like, it, he said this with all his sincerity, 
And inside, I could not have felt any differently than obviously he did because I felt something was so incredibly wrong with what I had just heard. I wanted to scream in that moment. Just another good choice. Hmm. Joseph lived in a culture where his bride-to-be was viewed as a valuable piece of property, little higher than the prized calf or maybe the family's devoted servant. And when we meet Joseph, Mary is simply supposed to be the next in a long line of good choices that he makes. Study the Torah, check. Learn the family trade, check. Bring a good girl home to mom and dad, check. But there is something within Joseph that resists this kind of pressure as we learn that he doesn't wish the humiliation that others would certainly believe Mary deserved. And yet Joseph is still unwilling to let his life be disrupted by Mary's pregnancy because it simply doesn't fit with the story of what good men who make good choices like Joseph do. But then God shows up and flips everything that Joseph has known upside down in the best possible way. Through this dream sequence and the words of this heavenly angel, God is helping Joseph to view Mary as more than just another good choice in his life. To see her as the big picture, to understand the importance of what is taking place, to see her as blessed and holy the way that God sees her, and to see his own life as something more than just a transactional list of expectations that revolve around him. The irony is that the self-centered life that Joseph had been raised to pursue by his community had actually diminished his enormous potential. What I mean is this, his community raised him to be Jacob's son. That was his dad's name, Jacob, Jacob the artisan. You're Jacob's son, right? But God's messenger reminds him he is a son of David. When's the last time he was reminded of his royal lineage? His family wanted him to build safe dwellings for his neighbors, but through Joseph, God would build a dwelling to be amongst all of God's people. His local religious leaders would drill religious legalese into his head, but God would pierce his heart and soul with a faith built upon compassion, love, and faithful pursuit of the Holy Spirit, even and especially when that pursuit led him away from the letter of the law. Matthew continues the theme of not the story that you were waiting for. In chapter 2, as Joseph is quickly asked to rise again to the occasion as he learns that Herod plans to kill his newborn son. Joseph is suddenly this father leading his scandalous family on the run as a refugee into the foreign land of Egypt. And I can only imagine how folks back home would have talked about him and his family. Did you hear about Joseph? Yeah, you know, Jacob's boy. He ran off with that girl, Marion, and you know, her kid isn't even his. They're probably too ashamed to show their faces around here anymore. What's more, Matthew makes an interesting note in the end of chapter 2 that I hadn't actually noticed until I was reading this year. After Herod dies and the Holy Family can return to their land, to Israel, Joseph intentionally avoids returning to Judea. That's the area where Bethlehem and Jerusalem are located because the new ruler is a threat to them just like Herod. And so instead, it says they settle on this place near the Sea of Galilee called, I think it's called Nazareth. The implication is that Nazareth was not actually Joseph's family home. There's no mention of the town anywhere before this moment. He's sent there out of necessity. 
Whatever roots or community or family business he'd built up in Judea was now dashed. He'd have to start all over in a small town, a village, really. Whatever path to traditional success that Joseph had previously walked, he had left it far behind in the rearview mirror by this point. Joseph will only end up mentioned in Matthew's gospel one more time, not even by name, and it's through the eyes of his community, the same kind of community that raised him pressured to perfection. And it says Jesus begins to preach for the very first time in the local synagogue. Now talk about a proud father moment. But as Jesus is preaching, folks in the crowd say, wait a minute. I know him. That's the carpenter's son. That's it. Not even his name. The carpenter. Disdain intended. In the eyes of the world, in the eyes of his community, Joseph was a mediocre man. But in the eyes of God, he was the kind of person, the righteous kind of person, worthy to raise God's child. Friends, in the face of a culture that sees people as transactional, that defines life by the boxes of expectation that we can check off and ultimately leads us to be depressed and anxious, indebted, cynical, and pessimistic, can Joseph show us a different way to live and to love? Joseph's story leads us to do some work this week in the form of knowing and sharing a sacred truth and holding a holy question. First, know and share the healing message this week. You are more than what you appear to accomplish. I'm going to say that again for someone who needs to hear it in this pandemic season. You are more than what you appear to accomplish. If this is a healing message that you need to hear, allow it to be your prayer this week. God, I know that your love for me outpaces my accomplishments. And even if this message is one that you already trust, trust me, there is someone that you know and love, a partner, a coworker, a friend, a child, a grandchild, somebody you know and love needs to hear this message, and you could be God's messenger. You could be the dream in the night. You are more than what you appear to accomplish. But then there is a holy question that we need to hold. What is one way that I can choose compassionate love over selfish advancement? Same kind of question that Joseph had to wrestle with. What is one way that I can choose compassionate love over selfish advancement? This takes awareness to the moment, attuning into the movement of the Spirit. We can't always see these moments in advance. Sometimes we just have to deal with them as they arrive. Maybe it's choosing to live your life more generously rather than trying to get a suit jacket with your name stitched inside. Maybe it's putting your partner's next big step in life ahead of your own. Maybe it's simply offering the grace and love of God through word and action to someone who needs to hear it and see it evidenced in their life. The funny thing about the Holy Spirit is that I don't know where she's going to lead you, but it does make me think this week about my friends Dustin and Sarah good friends of ours that live over in East Richardson. And this past year, Sarah had kind of a wild hair idea. She thought that she would start a new business, 2020. Good time to start a small business, right? Except she's really passionate and really good at making custom cheese boxes. And it turns out 2020 is a really good time to start a business like that because people are stuck at home. 
And they want something good to eat, something that's not the frozen meal they're going to pop in the oven like they did last night. And so all of a sudden, this little hobby of hers was becoming a really big business, and it was taking over their house and their kitchen tables and, and her life and her time. It was creating stress and anxiety, and, and she had the courage to say, I think I want to try this. And Dustin had the courage to say, I think I'm ready to invite this kind of mess and anxiety into our lives. She didn't have to ask, and, and he didn't have to agree. And now, months later, Sarah's got a, a brick-and-mortar location down in Deep Ellum, a Mori Queso. Maybe you've heard about it. Because they were willing to be bold. She was willing to be bold, and, and Dustin was willing to be there to support her. How could the Holy Spirit lead you to a compassionate kind of love, a kind of love that invites the mess, invites the stress, but leaves behind this pressure path of perfection in pursuit of something greater, something more? The story of Joseph is a story of choosing compassion over perfection choosing faithfulness over rigid religion and believing that God's words are true, that you are worthy regardless of what the folks back home may say. I can already feel the pressure lifting. Can you? Amen.